Let's start in the dictionary this week with the word tempering. Tempering is the process of uniformly heating a piece of metal to a precise temperature so as to cause a change in that metal's molecular structure. This process can manipulate the strength and hardness of the metal to achieve a product that is ideally suited for specific applications. The smithing of tools and weapons is dated by archaeology to thousands of years before Christ. And there is evidence of attempts at tempering the metal for specific applications even then. I share this with you because as we approach the end of 2 Timothy, and as I looked back at what Paul has written, it struck me that what Paul is doing, in some sense, is tempering Timothy. 2 Timothy is full of commands, full of instructions that are not easy to obey or to live out. Paul also includes many warnings and even points out the trials and temptations that have caused others to fail in their ministry or their faith. But this letter is also balanced and precise, with Paul regularly giving Timothy reminders of Timothy's own faith, of the relationship that he has shared with Paul, and mostly of the power and worth of Christ. Paul crafts a letter that reads both, Go forth! And beware. It lays out this is the prize. And this is the peril. Such a literary tension is designed to prepare Timothy for the realities of ministry. To strengthen his resolve and shape his expectations for what he will likely face as a leader in the church. It is designed to temper a follower of Christ. For a life of following Christ in a sinful and a sometimes deadly world. That such a letter is included in Scripture should cause us to examine our own expectations about life and to question how what Paul is doing for Timothy might be needed in our own lives. Let's bow our hearts before the Lord as we look together into his word. God, we know your word is for us. Help us to see what you have for us this morning. Speak as only you can and prepare our hearts to receive. That we may glorify you in living out what you have set before us. In Jesus' name, amen. 2 Timothy 4 begins, I charge you. This is an intense expression and rather a curious one. Some scholars surmise that the structure of the Greek here almost implies a purposefully omitted therefore. Almost as if Paul has broken off suddenly from his previous statements and said, Hey, listen, I charge you. Even though what he's about to say flows directly from chapter 3 and from all of what he's been writing, Paul wants Timothy's attention to be on this final piece of instruction. The word translated charge is also curious. Its meaning and usage seems to leave it somewhere between a command and an appeal. Some translations use, I urge you, or I exhort you. But perhaps 
The best way to understand this phrase and what follows is to see this statement as Paul presenting Timothy with a formal subpoena. He is calling Timothy to testify before the bar. And as intense as the opening phrase is, Paul then heaps upon it modifiers that raise the stakes of what he's demanding even further. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. The mention of God and Christ individually is conveying two separate thoughts. Timothy is to give his testimony before the creator of the universe, before Yahweh, who Timothy's mother likely taught him about in his childhood. All of the attributes of the one God, of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, are expressed through this statement. And Timothy is testifying before Christ Jesus, the anointed one of God, to whom Timothy has given his allegiance, and who, as Paul makes plain, is to judge the living and the dead. Timothy would have read this and known that testifying before this judge is not like testifying before the judges of men. This judge isn't waiting to hear something he has no knowledge of and then make a decision based on it. The Lord isn't waiting for Timothy to bring forth some, some revelation that will change his mind, that will change his judgment. Rather, Christ is there to observe whether Timothy is going to testify truly or perjure himself in the presence of the all-knowing God. Paul concludes his charge, and by his appearing and his kingdom. His appearing might refer either to Christ's earthly life, as it did earlier in this letter, or to his return. But in either case, Paul uses these last two expressions to drive home the final point. Christ is not judging from afar. He is near, active, and involved with the world, aware of what is going on, aware even of what is in men's hearts. And when he judges, he will bring all things into submission to the Father, and all that he has set out to do will be decisively accomplished. The stakes are real upon this earth. And Timothy had better recall now that sooner or later the time for choosing obedience, for choosing faithfulness, for choosing to stand up and testify will end. This is heavy. This is a weight of expectation upon Timothy. But what exactly is the responsibility that Paul is laying upon Timothy's shoulders? Primarily, it is to preach. Preaching is the authoritative proclamation of God's word. It is a task that is not for everyone. But don't breathe too big a sigh of relief, because we'll apply this passage more universally later on. But Paul makes this the foremost instruction of his charge to Timothy, because preaching is one of the foremost duties that Timothy has as an elder in the church at Ephesus. Indeed, one of the marks of a pastoral epistle is its emphasis on, as 2 Timothy 2.15 expresses it, the handling of the word of truth. 
If you read Paul's letter to Titus, you find almost all of the same expressions that Paul uses here to flesh out how Timothy is to use the word of God. Rebuke, exhort, teach. In 1 Timothy and Titus, the other two pastoral epistles, the focus is more on the safeguarding of the doctrine of the church. But here, Paul emphasizes that the danger he is concerned about is not the body, but to Timothy himself. Paul warns that the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Recall what we have surmised about Timothy's character and personality thus far in our study. He is likely a frail, sickly man. He seems to have been rather timid and perhaps naturally unsuited to the authoritative work to which he was called. So for Timothy, this is a serious concern. Indeed, for the faithful pastor, every sermon and many simple conversations bring with them the possibility that some will be offended. Not only because it is a, a pastor's job to reprove, to rebuke, to exhort, and teach. This is a hard enough task for anyone, because people are terrible at receiving correction even about mundane things. But the true tension lies in the fact that the faithful pastor brings the word of God. And it is God's word and the lordship of Christ expressed and declared through that word that is a stumbling block to many. Paul is calling on Timothy to preach because preaching is the front line of what Timothy has been called to do and because it is also the front line that Timothy would be tempted to fall back from. Well, that sure sounds tough. Thoughts and prayers, Timothy. Glad I'm not a pastor. Well, not so fast. Preaching is the primary responsibility that Paul lays on Timothy but it is not the ultimate responsibility. As we reach verse 5, Paul transitions back from warning Timothy about the unfaithfulness of others to say, as for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Fulfill your ministry. Paul is writing this letter to a young pastor, a young leader in the church. But what might it have sounded like if he were writing it to you? What if he was urging you, appealing to you, reminding you, commanding you to fulfill your ministry? My apologies if this is the first time you're hearing that you have a ministry. You do. We most often use minister and ministry when referring to pastors or to missionaries. But scripture is broader in its idea of what ministry is. The Latin origin of the word ministry is service. And the idea that we are God's servants absolutely saturates the Bible. It is demanded declared, implied, or explained in every single instance of God interacting with man, from Adam and Eve 
to the early church of which Paul and Timothy are a part. Perhaps one of the most famous and certainly one of the most beautiful New Testament passages showcasing this is 1 Peter 2, verse 9. Peter writes to the elect, to the church, but you, you church scattered across the world are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Priesthood is an office of service, of ministry. And just so we're all properly disillusioned, note also that it says here that we are to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. To proclaim This is not talking specifically about preaching, but it is saying specifically that your excuse for sitting back and keeping quiet about your faith is no excuse at all. Peter writes elsewhere that we should always be prepared to make a defense, to always be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in us. So much for leaving it all to the preachers. You have a ministry. How would Paul charge you to fulfill it. Certainly there would be differences in his letter if it was to someone who wasn't a young pastor in Ephesus in the first century. If you were his friend, his protege, Paul would use every ounce of relational leverage he had to drive home his points to you specifically. He would bring to mind your own life. If, as with Timothy, you are a committed disciple, Paul would remind you of how you have served the Lord and followed in the footsteps of those who shepherded you and the blessing that your faithfulness has been. He would exhort you to be sober-minded, which could also mean be alert, be on guard, be prepared regarding the areas in which you are vulnerable. He would stress that this life is hard and that to remain faithful, you must endure suffering. You will suffer in order to serve Christ. And he would hold forth God's word as sufficient for all your needs and preach to you that the gospel holds the power and the grace of God to see you through. Paul would also likely be specific in urging you toward what you know God has called you to. It might sound a little different for each person, but Paul addresses this variety to some extent in Romans 12, where he writes, if prophecy, in proportion to faith, if service, in serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. There are specific ways in which your life can and should glorify God. And there may be specific attitudes and convictions that God needs to work in you to faithfully hold to that calling. Paul would bring those things to your attention. And he would remind you that no matter what it is, it is all service to Christ. It is your service. Just as Paul might be specific in encouraging faithfulness to your calling he would probably also be specific in warning you of the dangers that lie ahead. 
For Timothy, it is apparent that the great danger was to the message God had given him to preach. Second Timothy constantly brings to Timothy's attention how his mentor Paul's gospel ministry led to others forsaking him and how it was irreverent babble and harmful speech and slander and lies that Timothy was to be on guard against. Paul's warning to Timothy during this climactic call to testify is that the warped desires of people would tempt Timothy to not preach in season and out of season, to not reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching, as he ought, as he knew he was called to do. But what might Paul have warned you concerning? Paul's words to Timothy might not sound like much of a threat to some. Perhaps you don't give much weight to the voices that surround you in your life. You're a strong personality. You chart your own course. But let's remember that fear of man comes in many different forms. Whether we withdraw or conform or react defensively or become bitter or cultivate pride or practice self-promotion or radical individualism. The sway that others have over our hearts and minds is often much stronger than we would care to admit. And there are many other temptations that could sway us from obedience to our calling. Maybe your warning would sound like, the time is coming when people will have comfort and safety so easily available to them that stepping out of their comfort zone seems like insanity. The time is coming when people's individual rights and opinions and feelings will become so dominant in the culture that speaking truth will be seen as violence. The time is coming when people will major in the minors and when the pursuit and defense of what is good will turn men away from what is best and essential. The time is coming when people will seek validation for themselves rather than submitting to God and those God has put over them. These all sound fairly similar to what Paul wrote to Timothy. They should. Romans chapter 1 makes clear why any of us would disobey God, why any of us would forsake our calling. We exchange the truth of God for a lie. We worship and serve that which was created rather than fulfilling the ministry of service given to us by the Creator. Let's recap for a moment. Paul has laid this heavy charge upon Timothy. Bear your testimony. Preach. It's heavy because it is a call to testimony before God and also heavy because there are significant dangers, significant temptations ahead that will pull at Timothy to go the route of so many others to turn away. Timothy has a ministry to fulfill, a service, a service to perform in life, and Paul wants him to go after it with eyes wide open. Here's the challenge. These are the stakes. And as we come to verses 6 through 8, we see that Paul also wants Timothy to understand clearly what this ministry is all about and why it is so worth it. Paul writes, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, 
and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. We have already pondered the imagery of tempering in this letter, of Paul preparing Timothy to fulfill his purpose, hardening him, strengthening him. Here the text introduces for us another image, the drink offering. Think of all the work that goes into winemaking. Above and beyond the already colossal work of simply tending a vineyard, there is the harvesting the crushing, the fermentation, the clarification, the aging, and the storage until the product is perfect, just as intended, so that it might be taken and poured out on the ground. This is how Paul is describing what his life has been and what Timothy's life should be. If we see all of 2 Timothy as a picture of tempering, this first sentence in chapter, in verse 6, excuse me, this serves as the quench. The hot metal, having been slowly and precisely heated to just the right temperature, is suddenly submerged in cold water or oil. It's shocking. It's quick. It's drastic. The purpose of the quench is to rapidly cool the metal, releasing carbon from within that would otherwise decrease its strength and locking in the molecular changes to the metal that the heating process caused. Paul's giving it to Timothy straight. He's laying out suddenly and clearly what the purpose of all this is. All your training, Timothy, all your growth, all the time and effort that I and others have invested and the lessons you've learned, and the potential you have, it is all intended so that you can be spent for God in a way that seems like a waste in the eyes of the world, just like I am being spent. God is calling each of us to fulfill our ministry. It may look different from person to person, and it may look different in your own life from one season to the next, but ultimately, we are to be the drink offering. We are to be living sacrifices. We are to place our lives on the altar of worship and service to God and let them be used up for his glory. And it's been spoken from this pulpit before, I know. The problem with a living sacrifice. He likes to crawl off the altar sometimes. Paul says to Timothy, stay on the altar. Suffer the pain and indignity of being a sacrifice. Let your life be poured out, used up. Why? Because it's so worth it. The apostle writes, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. This calls directly back to the same three ideas in chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. 
Paul is saying, I have pleased him. I have pleased the one who enlisted me, the one who called me. He's saying in chapter 2, and he makes plain again here in chapter 4, there is laid up for me, there's waiting for me a crown, a crown signifying the glory of my righteousness that is by faith. He's saying, I have a share in the crop. I will see and exalt in the result of my work. And Paul is also saying, you can have the same thing. Paul wants Timothy to want that reward. And he is implying that we should all want it too. It is for all those who have loved his appearing. Do you want that reward? It's okay to want it. We sometimes get it in our heads that the proper Christian mentality is to try and never want anything for ourselves. That's not biblical. Scripturally, we are to desire and pursue eagerly all that God has for us. Claim his promises. They are for us. A mansion, a crown, a new body, life eternal. These are all offered to us by God. Why would we not want them? And our consciences can be clear in understanding that God's gifts are always ours within the context of our receiving God himself, first and foremost. Christ is our ultimate gift. It is in chasing after him that you get all the rest. So chase after that reward. Store up treasures in heaven by becoming an offering on earth. Maybe you're not quite sure this morning how to become that offering. Fighting the fight and running the race and harvesting a crop and being tempered and being poured out all sound pretty wild and strange when we talk about the big things of life. These are images to help flesh out what a life of serving Jesus looks like. What it comes down to is that Jesus came to take broken people and to make them whole to take those who were spiritually dead and bring them back to life, to take people who were cut off from the goodness and blessings of God and draw them near. Jesus came so that the guilt of sin in our hearts could be removed, replaced with his righteousness, and empowered to fulfill our ministry, our proper service to God, which is what we were created for. you're here and you want to take on a life of service to Jesus, or you just want to talk, to ask questions, to explore more about what this is all about, please seek out one of our elders after service. They would love to talk with you, as would many others. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't know exactly what your ministry is. Or maybe you know what it is, but there is something in you that is struggling against doing what it takes to fulfill your ministry. Bring it to the Lord. Let him work in your heart to provide wisdom and courage. He will show you what he desires of his children. All of his children and each of his children. It is in seeking him first again that this comes. Paul writes this very short letter to encourage Timothy toward an entire lifetime of faithfulness. Timothy, too, surely has more to learn. 
but he trusted, and we can trust that God will teach and equip us. Sometimes it will feel like being tempered, like you're just sitting there in the fire. Sometimes our expectations for our lives will need to change. It'll feel kind of like the quench, where we have the cold realization that something is not right, where there is something that needs to be removed or embedded in our lives. Sometimes we will need to face our fears and cast down the idols we are serving rather than our Lord. Thankfully, we're not alone. Paul acknowledges in the last verses of this letter, which we'll look at next week, that God was always, always with him. And God is enough. But know also that we have been blessed with more. This body is here to equip and encourage, to assist in the tempering process. It's never an out-of-control process. It's never spinning out. It is always God working. And this body is here to help, to come alongside. We want to make disciples who fulfill their ministry. We want to come alongside each other and build each other up to help with this process so that our lives and our church would be an offering to God. Be challenged this morning. Be encouraged this morning. There's a ministry for you in the world. Will you fulfill it? Pause and reflect for a moment.